started Surface Scratchers, the very second episode, I think, was on battles and wars. Quite a lot of you wrote back saying that this was quite an enjoyable episode. So we thought, why not reprise such an episode? So if you want to learn more about a historical battle, like the Battle of Diyut or the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, as we discussed in episode two, stay tuned for more. Hello, hello, hello. I am Savant. Hello, listeners. My name is Ronnie and welcome to yet another episode of Surface Scratchers. Almost back by popular demand, here is Battles and Wars V2.0. The popular demand was me asking Ronnie if we should do it again <laughs> because that episode <laughs> was good. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really excited about this because uh, the more we do episodes, so Battles and Wars is such a vast topic. And each battle, conflict, war, whatever you want to call it, has so much historical significance, like baggage and baggage and centuries of history associated with it and implications in the future that it makes you want to dig a little deeper. So I thought, why not? Why not another episode on this and cover two more such interesting conflicts? What have you got today? So what I will be covering today is a little bit about the the conflict that's happening in the country of Myanmar. So you would have heard of the coup that happened on 1st February, right, this year. So a little bit about a history of why that's happened and the implications of that, along with a little bit, a small segment on the Rohingya conflict and the humanitarian crisis that's embroiled post that. Ooh, damn it. What about you, Ronnie? What are you going to cover? Hey, bro, I, I'll get started directly. Huh. So, you know where I stay in Bangalore. Na? My yes. neighbors are some army people. They're called the... Madras Engineering Group or the Madras Sappers. Okay. They own like tons of land over here. Alsur Lake, I think, is maintained by them and all of that. So I started digging as to what a group called the Madras something are doing in Alsur in Bangalore. So that is how I reached uh, my wars, which are the Anglo Mysore wars, which I'll be discussing today. Oh, wow. Interesting. Right. So before we get there, what are sappers? Because these guys are called the Madras sappers. Sappers are soldiers that go and dig trenches or okay. saps for cannons to, you know, be put in so that they can fire on the enemy. Oh. We'll get to why they're called Madras sappers, how they got here, etc. So I'll take you back, Savant, to the year 1767 mm-hmm. when Haider Ali is the... I think Sultan is what he called himself, of Mysore. This guy is the one who was before uh, Tipu Sultan, no? He's the papa of Tipu Sultan. Ah. So Hyder Ali is feeling good. He's a little powerful. The British have just come established base in Madras, as it was called then, in a fort called Fort, fort St. George. So Hyder Ali, I think, you know, tries to invade that area or whatever, almost reaches Madras and then acquires a lot of land in and they have a battle. And this battle was called the First Anglo-Mysore War yeah. between 1767 and 69. Later on, since we are on the Anglo-Mysore Wars, the Second Mysore War happened about 10-11 years later. Mm-hmm. Tipu Sultan defeated some yes. Englishmen. The Third Anglo-Mysore War is quite interesting. And the Third and Fourth are principally what we'll be talking about today. So the Third Anglo-Mysore War started when Tipu Sultan went and invaded Travancore. Mm-hmm. Travancore is a princely state that's presently modern-day Trivandrum and a few districts north of Trivandrum in yep. Kerala. 
I think Tipu Sultan already was controlling the northern parts of Kerala. He went and invaded Travancore. Travancore was uh, an ally of the British. So the British got in on the act and declared war, I think, on Tipu Sultan. Along with the British, the Nizam's forces, the Nizam of Hyderabad and the Marathas also joined the British to fight Tipu Sultan. Interestingly, over here, the chap in charge of Britain's army mm-hmm. was a guy called General Cornwallis, Charles Cornwallis. And I was just reading about this guy. He is the fellow who surrendered to George Washington in the U.S. War of Independence. Yes. In 1781, Charles Cornwallis surrenders to George Washington. Mm-hmm. So Cornwallis is defeated in the U.S. He comes to uh, India as governor general. And Cornwallis, the Marathas and Nizam's army thrash Tipu Sultan. Yeah. And they ask him to pay damages about 3 crore rupees or something of that sort. They take Tipu's sons as hostages. And I'd been to Chennai, you mm-hmm. know, for our friend Mohandas's wedding earlier. And while I was there, I went visited Fort St. George. On a side note, when did you go, man? I was pretty much with you the whole trip. I think I reached there a day early or something, perhaps. I don't know. Maybe. So yeah, one evening I went there. There's this massive statue of Cornwallis. Huh? He's about 10 feet tall. But the bottom six feet just showed this scene. Him taking Tipu's sons as, you know, uh, hostages so that Tipu doesn't get to any other shady shenanigans after that. Anyway, so that is the third Anglo-Mysore war. And now coming to the main thing of our discussion today, the fourth Anglo-Mysore war. This happens in 1799. Mm-hmm. So third Anglo-Mysore war was 1790 to 92. Between 92 to 99, Tipu pays all the dues that he's due to pay to the uh, English. He gets his sons back. And all this while he's been preparing. Okay, I need to get back at these guys. And so have the English. They've also built up their forces, etc. And after the defeat in the first two Anglo-Mysore wars, they have a infantry or you know bunch of soldiers that are properly trained in Madras. So these guys are the Madras pioneers, which mm-hmm. later become the Madras engineers or the Madras sappers. So Tipu's preparing for war. The British are preparing for war. What Tipu does, he writes to countries that I think are a little anti-English. So he writes to France, basically. Arabia, he writes to Afghanistan, Mauritius, and of course, France. Mm-hmm. And France at that time was ruled by Napoleon. Correct. So Napoleon, I think, wants to come to India and uh, kick the Britishers out of there. He's reached Egypt in the Suez yeah. and then drops a note to uh, Tipu Sultan saying, you've already been informed of my arrival on the borders of the Red Sea with an innumerable and an invincible army mm-hmm. full of desire of releasing and relieving you from the iron yoke of England. Unfortunately, our old friend Horatio Nelson, who made an appearance in our Phrases and Idioms uh, episode where he turned a blind eye. Nelson's blood. And people drink Nelson's blood, etc. So he makes an appearance here again. He ends up defeating Napoleon in Egypt and Napoleon can't come and help Tipu. Uh, the then Governor General of India, this guy called Richard Wellesley, mm-hmm gets to know about Tipu's shenanigans that he's writing to these people. Side notes are being exchanged. Intercepted a raven or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then he goes and asks Tipu, Ki, boss, what's happening over here? 
Tipu, I think, tries making some excuses. And then clearly, the no, uh, Richard Wellesley is not impressed. And he says, Ki, boss, I'm going to declare war on you. And that led to the start of the Fourth Anglo-Mysore War. So, where are we today? Tipu's lost the Third Anglo-Mysore War. He's had to give his sons hostage, pay a ransom. He's cleared all of that. Hmm. He's tried getting help from Napoleon. Napoleon, unfortunately, can't help him. His plot or whatever is found out by Richard Wellesley, who's the governor general of uh, uh, the East India Company, and war is declared. To help Richard Wellesley, uh, his younger brother, this guy called Arthur Wellesley, hmm. commands this army, comes from Madras to Mysore to fight Tipu Sultan. And those guys are my neighbors today, the Madras Engineering Group or the Ooh. Madras Sappers. And they arrive at uh, Sri Rangapatnam, which was mm-hmm. Tipu Sultan's capital. There, there's a war that happens. The walls of the fort are breached by cannon fire from the British. Tipu Sultan comes out, you know, all guns blazing, I think. Immediately gets shot, falls down and poor guy dies. Just like that. Yeah. He came out after he came out running, I think, after the walls were breached and, and got shot. The Mysore army is routed, the Britishers win. Arthur Wellesley apparently, along with this other guy called General Baird, find Tipu Sultan's body, check for a pulse, find out that he's dead, and take over Mysore, essentially. With this, we come to the end of the battle. The outcome, of course, was that by this time what had happened, the Britishers had won the battles of Plassey and Buxar in East India. What would have happened had Napoleon deployed his men and they reached India would have been a completely different story, right? We'd, we'd be speaking French right now, yeah, Paul, you know. Absolutely. So at Plassey and Buxar also, there also they were up against the French. Siraj Uddawla, I think, had sided with the French, but he forgot to carry some tarpaulin on the day before yeah. the battle. It trained and his gunpowder got wet and he could not fight the Britishers, apparently. Mm-hmm. So if Siraj Uddawla had brought some tarpaulin ag- along with him uh, in the battles of uh, Plassey, I think that was, and if Napoleon had <laughs> managed to help Tipu Sultan, we very well could have been speaking French right now. <laughs> anyway, so Tipu's uh, ousted his family, I think, is exiled to Kolkata, where even today I think there's a mosque or something dedicated to Tipu Sultan. So you'd wonder why Tipu Sultan mosque exists in Kol- Kolkata. It's because his family was exiled over there. The Britishers choose someone from uh, this family called the Vodeyars and instate him as the king of Mysore after that. And they essentially control uh, Mysore from that time. So that leads to, hmm. you know, the empire forming in India. So in this battle, uh, Savan, uh, so, so you know, uh, Tipu Sultan was a big guy with uh, gunpowder. He used rockets, etc., right? Everyone knows about Tipu's rockets. Hmm. Apparently, when Abdul Kalam visited NASA in this place called Wallops Island in Virginia, he noticed a painting where these rockets were being used by Hmm. Tipu Sultan's army against the British. So, NASA's apparently recognized the importance of that rocket that uh, Tipu Sultan used. And also, the British, once they defeated Tipu Sultan, they got hold of that rocket technology and this guy called Congreve in in uh, England improved the rocket or whatever. And unfortunately, one of the people who had to face the rockets after this was our old friend Napoleon <laughs> mm. in, in the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> so the Battle of Waterloo was fought between Napoleon and Arthur Wellesley. 
Richard Wellesley's brother who uh, got the Madras Sappers to then, uh, yeah. Bangalore and fought Tipu Sultan. He faced Tipu Sultan's rockets in the Fourth Anglo-Mysore War, became the Duke of Wellington by the time he was at Waterloo, and used those same rockets, improved versions against Napoleon and defeated Napoleon. Exiled him at yep. Saint Helena, which has got a national. <laughs> Whose national anthem we have discussed <laughs> discussed in episode five national anthems, <laughs> episode of callbacks. I've got one sure. last callback. So, uh, like, a, what did Tipu Sultan use cryptocurrency? <laughs> that <laughs> so, uh, so this rocket technology is now in the hands of the British, and in 1812 they had a battle with the Americans at. Fort mm-hmm. McHenry in Baltimore, and one person called uh, William Scott Key, damn, I forgot his name. Let's call him that. Saw these rockets bursting over a star-spangled banner Ooh. at Fort McHenry, and in the fifth verse of the United States national anthem, there's a line that says, "The rockets' red glare." which calls back to these Tipu Sultan rockets. Again, referencing our National Anthems episode from earlier. Brilliant. That was lovely, Ronnie. Great. Moving on from one decisive battle to what was then the British Empire in India, uh, to a very recent conflict, uh, which has kind of exploded very recently in early 2021, and Myanmar, the country I will be discussing, is on the brink of civil war. Hey, before you go there, what is a civil war and how is it different from a regular war? So civil war usually is a, a battle between people within the own jurisdiction. Oh, okay. Same countrymen fighting against each other. So this civil war is between the military and the residents or Got civilians. It. And hence it's termed as... It's not a it's not a war yet. I have to clarify that. It's not a war yet. But it's on the brink of you know exploding into a war. Got it. So Myanmar's military Ronnie has recently ended its you know decade-long alliance with democracy. Uh, and they launched this coup against the nation's most politic popular political party uh, headed by Aung San Suu Kyi. And I'll I'll talk about her mm-hmm. a little bit uh, as and when I, I discuss the story. So this happened on first February and it was it was kind of funny because uh, this one fitness instructor was filming her morning routine. Do you know about that that video that went viral? Yeah, it was quite funny because she was doing her morning routine, and at the at the back, it was like against this main road leading up to uh, the parliament or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you could see convoys and tanks and all on the way to the military coup. <laughs> so uh, this happened on first February, and shortly after that, the military announced a one-year state of emergency. And that the power would be handed over to this military general called Ming Aung Liang. Post that, you know, soldiers have been taken to the streets. Internet services have been cut on and off. Social media platforms were blocked. Curfews were introduced. And then finally, people started off with a peaceful protest. But in March 2021, I think two students were killed and things just went out of hand. Okay, Since then, some 700 people have died since this oh. first February coup. So it's really, really on the brink of exploding. Thankfully, now, as as of when this podcast is recorded, things are slightly peaceful. Mm-hmm. But still, it could explode anytime. Okay. So what is this complex relationship between the military and Myanmar's tryst with democracy? Okay. Mm-hmm. So as you're aware, Ron, the British Empire 
stretched from Pakistan in the east all the way to Myanmar, uh, Pakistan in the west all the way to Myanmar in the east. Mm-hmm. And they were under like 124 years under the British rule under the name of Burma. Mm-hmm. In 1948, I think is when they got their independence. After that, they've always been an unstable state generally because a lot of the ethnicities, uh, ethnic groups have been at it against each other. Okay. So in 1962, you know, around maybe 14 years after the independence, the military just planned a coup, scrapped the constitution and created this military janta or junta. Hmm. Okay. Ever since then, what was followed was always a one-party state headed by the military. Hmm. Now, this military since 1962 till now has been yearning to get the people's support. Okay. okay, and that's really critical towards the Rohingya crisis also what I'll explain in, in the later half of this story. But since 1962, the military has been at the helm of everything, trying to get the people on their side, having this, you know, single party state, very unstable. It wasn't until 1988 that its power was truly challenged by something called the 8888 uprising. So 8th August 1988. Okay, this was started by students. Okay. At that time, democracy was just the fad, right? Everyone wanted a democratic state. So the movement spread to hundreds and thousands of protesters. And that's where Aung San Suu Kyi emerged as one of the leading voices. She was a student back then or something? She was, well, she was already a prominent leader by then. Okay. Okay. So who is this Aung San Suu Kyi? She actually was the youngest daughter of Aung San, who is supposed to be the father of the nation Myanmar, modern okay. Myanmar. So she's actually graduated from the University of Delhi in 1964. She's my, she's my wife's senior. Same college they went to. Really? Yeah. LSR? Yeah. Wow, nice. So she graduated from the University of Delhi and then went on to Oxford and worked for the UN. You know, in fact, if you listen to her speak, she has this very polished Indian English accent. Okay. So Which is possibly... Which is strange because in Delhi they don't speak very polished. <laughs> I'm pretty sure in LSR they do. So... <laughs> So, so she'd been detained before the election and, you know, has been like possibly the most prominent political prisoner because she was in under house arrest for 15 to 15 years, I think, out of the 21 years from 1988 till, till the late 2000s. On the plus side, uh, uh, so, the lockdown must not have been too hard for her. <laughs> But yeah, in 1999, I think Time magazine also called her like the children of one of the children of Gandhi because her whole uh, outlook has been non-violence, civil disobedience, but with non-violence. So she really, really loved by the masses of Myanmar, always had the people's support. Right. She served as the chairperson of this party called the National League for Democracy or the NLD. Mm-hmm. Now... This is what has happened from 1988 till now. A, the international community has been putting super pressure on Myanmar's military saying that democracy is the future. You have to start giving in and and open up for democracy. Parallelly, Aung San Suu Kyi has been garnering a lot of political support and her push for democracy has been really strong. Okay. So in the late 2000s, I think around 2008, this military announced that it would start moving to a more democratic government. Okay? Right. However, the, the 2010 election, and they actually said that, okay, let's have an election. Uh, somehow that election didn't really pan out and, and the NLD or Aung San Suu Kyi kind of boycotted the election. But still, they're like, at least election hora. 
okay. as an outcome of that election this pro military party usdp came to power um. what was the twist in the uh, giving into democracy is that the military said that sure we don't mind creating a new constitution let's create this beautiful democracy however 25% of the seats will always be held by the military so this convoluted kind of system at least there are parliamentary elections but a fourth of them would be bad now to pass any law you need to have 75% so in a way the military still kind of controlled it okay it wasn't until 2015 ronnie when myanmar held its first genuinely open election and the nld won like hands down okay and did the military still have 25% uh, seats in the yes house yes yes and they also had a clause that uh, aung san suu kyi cannot be prime minister president because her kids are born outside of myanmar sir what this is like that guy who when you play cricket na the guy who gets the bat and the ball he says if i hit a car no it is not out <laughs> but still you know if you think of it as versus military dictatorship this kind of complex structure where at least there is a democratic vote is still better so aung san suu kyi and the nld thought ki theek hai at least this is better than nothing so at the back of her head aung san suu kyi always was trying to side with the military in a way because she knows that this is a step in the right direction and eventually it can graduate to a democracy because the people will start realizing the value of democracy again last year they had some elections nld won hands down dude it is unbelievable how popular she is within myanmar the military did not like this they realized that she's garnering way too much support and then this happened on february 1st where military coup and they uh, arrested aung san suu kyi and her uh, entire nld leadership for random grounds so i think aung san suu kyi was arrested because there were six walkie talkies found in her front yard so they were like are ye to import restrictions ko tune you know ignore karke you've kept it so you've kind of you know smuggled these walkie talkies at wow. and now myanmar is really really pissed off they tried peaceful protest nothing is working right and hopefully things should get better if the military behaves which brings me to the rohingya conflict so what do you know about this crisis roni before i start i don't really know too much except that uh, they they i think muslims and they live in areas that border bangladesh and india and there was a huge uh, outpour into bangladesh for sure and they were mm-hmm. put in some internment camps or some islands i heard in bangladesh and india yeah accepted a few but then started sending back some yeah spot on spot on so when it was the british indian subcontinent people used to travel like all the time right within the subcontinent the 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 myanmar folk never really agreed that the rohingyas belong to this rakhine state now just to you know illustrate the geography of myanmar on the west bordering bangladesh they have this state called rakhine okay, okay. in the north of this rakhine is one small province where the rohingyas are a majority okay now who are these rohingya people okay they are indo aryans uh, they are they speak rohingya which is kind of similar to a chittagongian bengali of sorts but not like completely intelligible with bengali so it's slightly okay. different they have a different script and it's very different from uh, burmese which the mainland folks speak mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so different ethnic group altogether completely different ethnic group 
and the and and islamic all of them are you know 97 or 98% of them are islamic there are 2% on hindus so the the burmese never really accepted them as a part of myanmar okay now what's been happening since unfortunately uh, right from the 1948 when they got the independence there were like 130 140 ethnic groups but the rohingyas were never accepted as one because they were always thought to be illegal immigrants from bangladesh just because they speak a language similar to chittagongian so there is and these they are very impoverished so 78% of that rakhine state is below poverty line so they have no documents to prove anything in 1982 this new citizenship law like similar to cnrc was passed where you know they identified ki these 130 ethnic groups are uh, can qualify for citizenship the rest can't and the rest included the rohingyas because then they have no documents man so they can't really prove anything poor guys so throughout the history the uh, the the burmese military have been planning these operations there's this one operation that they called clean and beautiful nation which was literally ethnic cleansing of the rohingyas like literally that's what they wanted to do push them out like out of of rakhine uh and obviously when something like this happens then the reverse starts happening this is exactly what happened in syria also so the rohingya separatist movements emerged and apparently they were backed by the al qaeda taliban uh, uh and they launched you know this one party called the rohingya solidarity organization rso and you know a lot perpetrated a lot of attacks against the burmese in the rakhine state so it is kind of now a battle between uh the military on the one side and these paramilitary groups like the rso on the other in 2016 there was another group called the arakyan rohingya salvation army that emerged and they always coordinated these small scale attacks okay hmm. in 2017 something really big happened which was the trigger for the entire conflict crisis yeah the crisis 12 people died in an attack by the arsa arsa on a police post ever since that the myanmar military has lost it they've been burning their villages around like one village after the other pushing them towards the north pushing them and some mm-hmm. 400 people immediately died and 500000 rohingyas migrated to cox's bazar in bangladesh wow. this has possibly been the biggest humanitarian crisis and possibly the biggest migration in recent times so My now God. bangladesh is quite concerned they're like why should we take all these so all the people around cox bazar are saying that these people are working for 50% of the taka rate that we are working for mm-hmm. india on the other hand has taken only 40000 refugees uh, india of course is dealing it with its own ca nrc problems and and so really and they were they've been very clear on their stance we'll help out but we can't everyone else has pretty much closed their borders malaysia uh, indonesia thailand all have said that we'll provide aid and medicines but we won't naturalize these guys so it's quite sad they are stateless they absolutely have no place to go myanmar is not going to take them back even a pro democracy peace loving person like aung san suu kyi has not said anything pro the rohingyas so this one's uh, we'll have to be on, watch from the sidelines how it unfolds but props to bangladesh for taking them in i guess hey but th- thanks for taking us through this i i did not really know you know the full scale of the rohingya crisis and the role that the military are playing in the coup so hopefully guys things will improve there will be lesser conflicts 
but unfortunately as we speak there are multiple civil wars being fought all over the world the most famous one is the one in syria but ethiopia is on the brink of one so mm-hmm. is sudan we would love to discuss more of these ongoing wars and conflicts with you if you guys are interested so do write in to us with suggestions if you have any to surfacecatchers@gmail.com yep else by one of our popular demand we'll resurface this battles and wars episode <laughs> maybe then a dozen episodes down the line thank you so much for listening take care bye